Father, we, um, Father, I pray that that is our cry tonight, that um, as we sing these songs, I pray that um, in our hearts that it's true, that our hearts will sing no other name but you. And so, Father, so often we look to other things to give us meaning and to give us life and to give us worth, but but at least tonight in this place, we look to you and all things. We look to you for truth, for guidance, for hope, and for life. So, Father, speak to us tonight as we look into your word. Change us and make us more like your son, Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can be seen. Mute myself. All right. So uh, for fear of potentially losing some of the crowd, I'm going to do something anyway. I know that what we did last Sunday was put a period on um, football season. Um, but I wanted to pull it back out one more time. And um, and hopefully you will um, run with me on this. Um, and we'll just set this right here and talk about the game for a minute. Um, <clears throat> some say uh, that what happened in uh, Super Bowl, uh, whatever that one was, number whatever, last week, um, uh, with the 49ers losing, really had everything to do with the coaches. Now, I haven't, I haven't talked to, um, you know, s- some of our, our resident professionals here about this really in detail, but, um, I did listen to a, a few ESPN guys on, on TV, and one of the things that I heard them say was, when it got down to, uh, that last drive, if you weren't watching the game, the 49ers had been bouncing back ever since the great blackout, whenever somebody pulled the plug and, you know, craziness happened. And, uh, and so they turned the lights back on and, uh, and the 49ers have been bouncing back, bouncing, coming back, coming back, coming back, coming back. And they finally get to within just a few points. I mean, they're going to go ahead. All they got to do is punch it into the end zone and they are inside the 10 yard line first down. And they have four plays to do it, and they can't get the touchdown. Now, here, here's what they were saying on TV. I heard one guy say this. He said, as creative as the 49ers had been all season long, they chose to do pass play after pass play after pass play and not run it once, not give any variety down there. They knew exactly what was coming, and they ended up losing the game because of the authorities on the sidelines of the coaches there in the box of the guys agreeing with Jim Harbaugh, yes, we're going for this way to win the game. And it was the wrong, it was the wrong play. That's what some say. Some say that it was all about what happened in the play calling that lost the Super Bowl for the 49ers. I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe not. But sometimes I think whether off the field or on the field, we obviously don't always agree with what the authorities in our lives are saying, with the plays that are being called. Sometimes the government, the government, right, calls a play. And we're like, what? Insurance, what? I mean, I mean, there's all kinds of ways that the government throws plays into our path. And we go, well, I know your authority, but I don't get this. It was certainly happening even in Jesus' day. We're going to unpack that in a minute. Sometimes our boss calls a play and we start looking for greener grass because we don't like the plays he's been calling lately. There's a consistent, constant relationship we have with authority throughout our lives. And today we're looking at the real Jesus. If you've got your Bible with you, I encourage you to open it, open it to chapter 11 of Mark. We're going to look at the end of 11 into 12. 
if you're following along on the YouVersion app on your phone, uh, you can go to the live search there and type in 75022 and you will get the zip code of this spot and you'll find the notes for tonight there as well. Um, and so we're going to jump in uh, to this uh, chapter 11, verse 27. And I believe that as Jesus spoke to the authorities of his day about authority, it was just as real to them as it is about to be to us 2,000 years later. Verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple complex, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Translation, they've been watching. They have been a part of all of chapter 11. And they have watched him come in with a huge procession. And they have watched him bust up some tables in the temple and destroy business. And they're saying, by what authority can you have a parade for yourself and then go busting up the temple? Verse 29, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you a question. As he often does with them, he counters their question with a question. This time it's with a twist. Because he says he's going to give them the answer if, he answer if they answer his question. He says, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. That is very interesting to me. That's a very interesting response of Jesus. Because he was not asking them for a response. He was actually demanding one of them. This is, this is, this is a command from Jesus to these chief priests and scribes and elders. And they began, verse 31, to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. <laughs> And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things then. Now, this is huge because what's, what was John doing? John was preaching a baptism that occurs after repentance. He was, he was proclaiming the arrival of the coming one. If John's message had divine approval, then so did Jesus' message. If the leaders agreed about John's legitimacy as a prophet, here's what they were scared of. If they agreed with his legitimacy, then they were scared of the crowd's response. Because then the crowd would go back to them and say, well, if you really believe John, then why haven't you been? I mean, you're religious leaders. Why didn't you follow an example? Why didn't you get baptized? Why didn't you do? Why haven't you repented? And they were scared of what the people's response was going to be. Because you see, these people had done that because they believed in John's authority as a prophet. This answer, if they gave that answer, would only validate Jesus. And there's no way that they were going to do that. But if the leaders denied that John was legit, they had a whole nother can of worms they opened up. Because as the scripture says, these people believe John was a genuine prophet. And so if their own religious leaders went against that belief, whoa, the crowd was going to be really upset. They could not be seen verbally disagreeing with one who so many considered to be a prophet. 
Jesus had caught them in a very precarious situation. So you know what they did? They punted. I don't know. Much the way our kids do, right? Who created this mess? I don't know. I don't know. You're the only ones up here, right? The way our students do, right? Uh, how was school? I don't know. We're going out to eat, right? You turn to your spouse. Where do you want to go? We punt. I don't know. We punt for all types of reasons. We punt in very personal ways to God. When confronted with what our own spiritual growth plan is for 2013 or what we would like to see happen in our lives or our family's lives or our kids' lives, our kids' spiritual lives, our marriages, we, we get confronted with those types of questions by God or by others and we punt. I, I don't know. Because there's no risk, right? I mean, why go for it on fourth down? But we forget that what we're actually doing is just kicking the ball right back to the enemy who has a very large, successful playbook that he plays on us over and over and over again. And when these religious leaders came face to face with Jesus' authority in their lives, they did what we do. They were actually dishonest with themselves. And we play those games with words and excuses. And so I, so I was in college and um, had the unique privilege of being able to sing in Carnegie Hall. I was actually a music major when I first walked into uh, Baylor uh, and uh, vocal performance and wound up on the, in the Baylor Men's Glee Club. And, uh, and we went to Carnegie Hall and sang. And it was my first New York City experience, and it was amazing. You know, eating at Carnegie Deli, watching Les Mis for the first time, going to the Empire State Building. I mean, phenomenal. But the thing that really made that particular trip unique was my roommate. My roommate, I'll, we'll just call him Joe. Joe, by the time he was a, let's see, what was he at that point, a junior at, at Baylor, was pretty much a closet alcoholic. No, not a closet alcoholic. He was just a plain alcoholic. And uh, and yet he was in the men's glee club with us and he was my roommate for the week. And so uh, we're there and uh, we go. I mean, just it, he was it was just it was frustrating. It was sad. We went to go see Les Mis and uh, he he came drunk to the performance and uh, and left at intermission because he thought it was over. And I can understand that. I, I went, I, come on, do you want to finish? You know, it's like and one day more. And he just thought, well, that's fantastic. Oh, we're out of here. You know, come on. Wait, Joe, come back. And so, I mean, I can just tell you story after story, one more story that you'll appreciate about Joe, maybe. Um, one day, we were thinking, how can we get into a live studio audience, right? Have you ever, has anybody ever been in a live studio audience? A couple, a couple of you? Fun stuff, right? The only live studio audience that we could get on at, on that day that we were trying to do it was the Geraldo show. This is before he went to Fox News, right? This was broken chair in the nose Broken nose with the chair days of Geraldo, right? And so, uh, and so we go on the show and true story, uh, we're, we're in the crowd, in, in the audience, uh, before the show starts and my friend Joe strikes up a conversation with another girl in the audience there and, and they find out that the, um, that the subject of the show is on long distance relationships. So, so they decide to try to fool the producers and pretend they're in a long distance relationship. 
And so, uh, so they, they do. Long story short, they do fool them and they wind up sitting my friend Joe and this person that he's just met that he's in the long distance relationship with on the front row of the crowd there in front of this therapist who later on in the show actually starts dialoguing with them as they begin to share with them this made up relationship that they've created behind the scenes in the show. I mean, in the, in the audience. And the best part of it all, I'm about four rows back watching this whole thing happen. And at one point, the therapist is like, well, I can just tell you guys really love each other. You're going to make it. I'm like, this is TV, right? This is this is TV. And so 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 Joe was just wow. I mean, he got hit by a cab while we were there. He was I mean, just all kinds of crazy things happening to Joe. And we go through that whole New York experience and we are in the plane seated, headed back to Texas. And, I, you know, crazy enough, I mean, I just, I just, I was just blown away by his life because that's not the kind of life that I lived at that time at all. And I just said, dude, I'm just curious. I know, why did you choose Baylor? Like, I know everybody who's goes to Baylor isn't like a Christian. I get that. But it's like, well, I mean, what do you think about God? And Joe said, uh, you know, um, I, I have a lot of respect for God. As a matter of fact, I believe that Jesus, Jesus is God's son. And I was like, well, that's cool. And he said, but I, I have no intention of following him until I get all this partying out of my system. You know, for Joe, that made perfectly good sense. I mean, I can have my cake and I can eat it too. I can party right now. I can follow Jesus later. We get all types of excuses into our brains as to the reasons why maybe the authority that Jesus begins to assert into our lives, maybe himself, maybe through his word, maybe through the relationships that we have with other people. But we have all of these things that we set ourselves up for. And the truth is, we just wind up being very dishonest with our soul. This is really just too hard to understand, God, or I just don't have time right now, or I think I'll come back to this another time. And what we're really saying to God is, I will not follow you. I will not follow you. And crazy enough, though, Jesus isn't really offering or interested in rain checks. At this moment, he's giving us the opportunity. Did you see what fueled their response, though? Did you see it in the verse? It, it was actually fear, fear of the crowd. It's the same for us. We are confronted with Jesus' authority in our lives, and he says, hey, will you hand over to me X? I mean, you said I was Lord of all, Randy. W- what about this? What about that? What about your business? And internally, we are afraid of losing control of where he's going to take us, of the unknown. But I thought you said I was Lord of all. What about your friendships with these coworkers? What about your friendship with that neighbor? What about those parents on your kid's soccer team? But God, I'm afraid of the crowd's reaction. Then we're no better off than the chief priests. That when driven by fear of the crowd's response said, I don't know. Because they punted. They were dishonest and they were afraid. But Jesus has given them the answer to their question. Through his question, he gave them the answer. They couldn't admit it. 
But the reality is John's authority was from God, which means John was saying things about Jesus that were and are true, that Jesus does have all authority, period. Let's read on. Chapter 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out of a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Now, pause right here. This this owner, what this is basically saying, I don't know if you've uh, dabbled much in vineyards, right? But what this is basically saying is this owner is setting up his workers well. I mean, it's like your your kid goes off to college their freshman year and you have them set up inside of a great furnished apartment with a credit card, with a car that works well. He has set them up. Moving on. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. And at harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from the farmers. Why did he do this? Well, for one, to retain the rights of the land, his constant presence there kept that relationship with that land moving. All right. But interestingly enough, he really didn't need the fruit. As tradition would have it, that would occur not because he needed the fruit, but this practice kept the land under his domain and it reminded the tenants of whose land they were farming. And I was looking back over this this week, and this isn't even like a main portion of our talk tonight, but I just thought, wow, what a principle tucked away here in this amazing parable that God doesn't need our tenth, that he doesn't need our tithe, our abilities, our talents, our time, our effort, our money. Because when he comes in power in the Holy Spirit and whispers into our ear regarding service opportunities, worship opportunities, sacrifice, it's not because he's a needy owner. It's not because he needs our fruit. It's because he's built that system. It's because he's built this system in such a way that it is set up to give us constant moments of remembering who he is and where we are and who we are. And we give the sacrifice so that we are reminded that we have a good vineyard owner who's giving us so much more than we deserve. Verse 3. But they took him in spite of all his generosity and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed, this servant. Again, he sent another slave to them and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another and they killed that one. And he also sent many others and they beat some and they killed some. In verse six, he still had one to send a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. You see, in that day, if no heir was found for a piece of land, then it could go to anybody. And what these tenant farmers probably believed was when they saw the sun show up on the property, that the owner was probably dead. So if they offed the sun, guess what? Their percentage of possibility of owning this piece of land went up exponentially. Verse 9, therefore... What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. 
Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes because they knew he had said this parable against them. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were, here it comes again, it's a common theme, afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Let's make sure we know who all the players are. I think you probably figured it out already, right? The owner of the vineyard, God. The vineyard, Israel. The tenant farmers, the spiritual and political leaders of the day. The servants that he sent, why those were the prophets. The son of the owner, Jesus. We got all that, right? This parable is actually something that Jesus is speaking that's an illusion. It goes back to Isaiah chapter 5, where the vineyard is clearly stated as Israel. And the owner clearly is understood to be God. And Jesus wants them to see the parallel. Because he wants them to see what they are doing with the ultimate authority. Jesus changes the image, though, in verse 10 to that of a cornerstone. Again, drawing from this image in, in the Old Testament in Psalm 118. And the, the nation of Israel would have understood cornerstone to be, or the stone that the builder rejected to be that of their nation. But the New Testament believers, post-Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, would have read this and understood cornerstone to refer to Jesus. Bottom line, the hearers of this story understood quite well what Jesus was getting at in verse 12. They knew that he had spoken a parable against them. That they had rejected the ultimate authority. He is in their face earlier. He is bringing them up against John the Baptist and he forces their hand and it is decision time. And they are what in their response? They are dishonest and they are afraid. But now in speaking about the vineyard, he gives them a look at the consequences for rejecting authority. And they leave out of fear again. But within the parable itself, Jesus actually reveals to us a couple of other reasons, a couple of other reactions that we have when we rebel against the authority of Christ in our lives. Because you look at these tenant farmers. What really they're fueled by is ungratefulness. They're not grateful for what he's provided. He starts off the whole parable with saying, I have set you up and it wasn't enough. And beyond their ungr- and guess what? Their ungratefulness led to, you know what? Them being fueled by their pride. I, this is not enough. I want it all. I want, I want the ownership rights. They wanted control of the land. They wanted the driver's seat. How does that look for us? You know, I'll figure it out on my own. Independence, right? I I don't want to be dependent on the owner. I mean, that's weakness, right? Their response to authority was fueled by pride and a lack of gratitude. I mean, in our kids' responses, when when they are um, uh, have negative responses toward us, right? It's it's never fueled by ingratitude or pride, is it? Of course it is. And as, and, and as adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, we have the same tendency within our own sinful nature, don't we? Just like our kids. We treat God the same way. We have such a short-term memory. We forget what, or memory loss, because we forget what Christ has done for us. And we forge ahead even without a glance in his direction. But let's go back to the story. They want to spar one more time, a little bit more with him. We're coming to the end here. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him to trap him by what he said. And when they came, they said to him, Teacher, 
We know you are truthful and defer to no one, for you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or should we not pay? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one. Whose image and inscription is on this, he asked them. Caesar's, they said. And Jesus told them, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. Now they think they've turned the tables on Jesus in this conversation. They think they've placed him in the corner. He put them in the corner earlier. Now they think they've done the same to him. I mean, he has to answer, and either way he goes, they've got him. If he says, don't pay it, his answer would be seen as what? As treason. And guess what? They would love that, because then what could they do? They could get the Romans to do their dirty work, right? They could take care of Jesus for treason, and their hands are washed. They don't even have to deal with Jesus anymore. The Herodians were all about... They were the political party in favor of Roman occupation and all that that came with. And so half of the guys who showed up to ask him the question were in the pocket with the Romans. They were going, hey, this is all fine. The occupation here is good. They're giving us streets. They're giving us culture. We can deal with all their other junk. This is all fine. This is great. And they know if he says, don't pay it, they're going back to their buddies. In the Roman court and saying, this guy is treasonous. But if Jesus says, yes, go ahead and pay it. Then all of a sudden, he's dealing with a whole nother bad crowd. Because now he's got the Pharisees on the other side. He's got the Herodians on this side. He's got the Pharisees on this side. And you know what the Pharisees are doing? They're going, well, hey, way back in, um, uh, oh gosh, go all back to the Exodus. What did God say? Don't make any graven image. There's a graven image right here. I mean, is this not a form of worship that, I mean, we should we really be doing this? Not to mention the fact they were really kind of just ticked that the Romans were there anyway. And every time they had to pay that tax to be in the land that Rome occupied, it was just really ticking them off. They didn't want to have to do it anymore. So if Jesus said pay it, if Jesus said don't pay it, he was going to make people really upset. So what does Jesus do? Jesus answers them in a way that takes them, once again, 30,000 feet above the playing field. He's letting them know that there is a responsibility to fall under the authority of the government and to pay for the benefits that they have received while under its authority. But that's not about worship. He divides it. And he says... That that's about what the government is providing you that you are under the authority of that God has placed over you. But God himself, he deserves your life. He deserves your soul. He deserves your worship. So this brings to us a fitting close to the passage tonight, because Jesus reminds them and us that the authority question is already answered. And our response is to bring everything under his submission. I mean, that's really, in essence, what Ephesians 1.22 and 1 Corinthians 15.27 says, that all things are under, what? His, Christ, authority. So here's the question. Can we just possibly just lay down our dishonest tendencies, lay down our fears, lay down our pride, 
deal with our ingratitude and allow his authority to sweep into our lives. Because he doesn't want us to punt. He's calling some plays. He's wanting to, he's, he's sending in some plays from the sideline that will work. And what he wants us to do is take a step of faith. To take a risk. And allow him to run the play. He has a play he wants to run in your marriage. He has a play he wants to run with your kids. He has a play that he wants to run in your business. He has a play that he wants to run in your future. He has a play that he wants to run. And here's the key. That play is not in your playbook. You would never run this play. It's too risky. It's not the play that your neighbor is running. It's not the play that your kids, friends, parents are running. It's not the play that your colleagues are running. But it's a play that wins. And it's a play that comes from authority that is right every time. And it's going to win the game. And I guess the question is, are we listening? I want you to close your eyes for a minute. Psalms challenges us, David does, to be still and know that he is God. Maybe the beginning of listening starts right now. Maybe you've ignored the play that he's been wanting to call. Because you haven't allowed him to be the authority. Maybe it's out of fear. Maybe it's out of pride. Maybe you tried something kind of like it before, but it was in your own power. And the light just went on. You know what? This wasn't his play. It it had been yours. God, I'm going to ask you by your Spirit to whisper those plays in our ears. We know that your authority is worth following. And so we want you to know right now that we're listening. So a couple of weeks ago, um, I was trying to listen. And um, <clears throat> and uh, God, um, I say it's God, God reminded me, I guess, of, um, of uh, a play that I, I think he wanted me to run a long, long time ago. And um, it, it was just it was just a way it was it was something that would be really I thought really cool to 
to be able to know how to do, you know. And um and so I and so I I uh I just kind of I dabbled with it a little bit and then I just kind of tossed it off to the side. You, you know, hobbies, you know, you've done that with something before, you know, you you start with something and you're just like, ah, I, I'll get back to that. And you don't get back to it and you don't get back to it. And then a year and then five and then 10 and then 15 years later, you know, and you're like, well, I guess that's over. I guess that's past. And, um, and as I was, and as I was sitting there and I was writing, it was like, you know, God just whispered in my ear. No, actually, um, time hasn't passed. You can still do that. And as a matter of fact, you've got some kids now that are old enough that you guys can learn that together. Okay. All right. Uh, my initial reaction was not, yes, God, I would love to do that. That would be fantastic. My first reaction was, I don't have time. <laughs> I've already got a lot of stuff going on. Um, to which he then reminded me, well, you had time to run that race last year. I mean, you trained for that marathon, right? Oh, yeah, I did. Okay. You make time for what it is that, okay, yeah, I know that. All right. Um, yeah, it's just a little thing. It's just, it's just a little, it was just a little thing. It's going to be fun to watch what happens with it over the year. Maybe I'll share with you what it is later, but, you know, right now, I'd rather see how, how it starts off first. But running the play. I've been challenged to run the play in this one area. So, How's it going to start with you? I don't know. Get away. Go put some noise cancellation headphones on, right? And and go go sit somewhere and just be still and listen. And 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 maybe it's a bench in the park, or maybe it's a couch when your house finally gets really quiet. But just 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 talk to him about relationships and your future and current challenges you're facing, and just and just listen. And then open up God's Word and read and listen and read and listen, and then and then be honest with yourself and sacrifice pride and press through the fear and with a grateful heart. Take a step of faith and run the play. God, may we run the play. The next play you have for us. Because it's a winner. And it will defeat the enemy. And it will bring you glory because all of your plays bring you glory. God, may our worship in this place bring you glory as we give of our tithes, as we experience communion together, as we finish in song. God, may the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, our conversations back to you about these plays that you've whispered into our ears, may they be pleasing unto you.